Well, our goal for the past couple dozen sermons in this series has been that when you're done with it, you could get a GED in the Christian faith. You know the basics. You can have a, a high school graduation level of knowledge about the Christian faith. Today, talking about a subject that comes up all the time, so you pretty much have to have some exposure to it. The question is, are humans actually prisoners of faith? That, uh, fate, that is. Uh, are we trapped in some sort of a predestination election thing that affects everything we do and we're really not able to get out of this prison of fate. Uh, interestingly, June 8, 1918, a new star suddenly appeared in the nighttime sky. It wasn't really new. It had been there. But what happened is it borrowed gases from another nearby star it became a nova, and it glowed so brightly that it was seen for the first time on June 8, 1918. On the next night, June 9th, it was so bright, it borrowed so much gas from this nearby star that it glowed more brightly than any other star in the nighttime sky. And everybody thought, ooh, you know, a new star, it's great. And then it diminished in brightness over the next 12 days and kept diminishing over the next 18 years, and eventually it just became, you know, like it always was, pretty dark, although we can still see it with a telescope. The thing is, that star, which is now called Nova Aquilae, was actually 657 light years from us. So when we saw that star flash up, burst up, uh, that actually didn't happen in 1918. That happened in 1200. But it took a long time for that light to get to us, and so we saw it in 1918. Time is weird. Scientists claim that if an alien thousands of light years away from Earth looked toward Earth today, they could see dinosaurs. Or they could see Noah's Ark, or depending on you know how far away they are, they could see David killing Goliath because that's how your vision works. Light comes into your eye, it's processed in your eye, and so that, that light from a star can be a long ways away and you're just now seeing it. Time is just really weird. Time is very complicated. Einstein, as a matter of fact, seems to be correct, nobody really doubts this, that time is so entangled with space that we should really call it space-time. Uh, they're all tangled together. And what's really important about that space-time continuum is that every question we have on today's topic, on predestination, election, determinism, fate, every question we have is entirely about the concept of time, and time is weird. So the question is, was my future set in stone before I was born. Greek fatalism. Do you remember, maybe in high school or college, you studied our good friend, Oedipus Rex. Uh, King Oedipus. Remember his story. Uh, his mom and dad are royals. They are, the, um, they are the royals of the city of Thebes. Prophecy says that their little boy is going to grow up to kill dad and marry mom. Mom and dad are horrified. We can't let that happen. So they take little baby Oedipus out into the woods so he just dies. They didn't have the heart to actually take a dagger and cut him to bits. So they just left him out to die. Shepherd comes along, finds the baby and says, well, we can't let the baby die. Brings the baby back with him to Corinth. 
and Oedipus is raised as a prince in Corinth. Well, Oedipus goes to a prophet one day. By the way, all this is 400 years before Christ. That's when this story is being told. Oedipus goes to a pagan prophet. Pagan prophet says, yeah, I got to tell you, you're going to grow up and kill your dad and marry your mom. Like, oh, I can't let that happen. I love my mom and dad. So he flees Corinth. He says, if I get far enough away from Corinth, I can't possibly kill my dad and marry my mom. So he decides to run to Thebes. Uh-oh, that's where his biological parents are. He runs to Thebes. On the way, he gets in a fight with this man who is so miserable and annoying, and he kills him. Uh, that was his dad. He just killed his dad, like the prophet said. Like, oh, no. He gets to Thebes. Thebes is having a plague. It's because the Sphinx, you know, in Egypt, Thebes, Sphinx. The Sphinx has put a plague on everybody in Thebes and is going to keep the plague there unless somebody can answer the riddle. And Oedipus Rex says, I'll save you, all of you people in Thebes. I will answer the riddle. The riddle is, what has four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening? He says, oh, I know that. That's a human being. When he's a baby, he crawls on four legs. When he grows up a little bit, he walks on two legs. And in the evening, when he's old, he has to use a cane. He has three legs. Sphinx says, oh, good job. But she's mortified, and the Sphinx kills herself, but lifts the plague. He saved Thebes from the plague. What shall his reward be? I know. The recently widowed queen needs a husband. We will give you the queen's hand in marriage. And so Oedipus marries his mother. When he eventually puts all the pieces together, connects the dots, he's so miserable, his mother kills himself, he blinds himself, and it's a terrible ending. That's the story. Because it was all figured out before you were born, and there's not one thing you can do about it. Is that the way it is for Christians? Complications, time sequences, actually built into the very terms of Scripture. We call this preordination or predestination, or foreordination. All of those prefixes have to do with time. And we talk about things happening before the foundation of the world and the children being not yet born. You see, all of that is sequence, time sequence. This happened, and then this happened. So it's built right into the language of Scripture. Trouble is, we don't know what it's like to be God because God is essentially detached from the sequence of time. Remember, Space-time is a creation of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Space-time. Before there was space-time, there was God. What is it like to be God detached from space-time? And God, being omnipresent, he is in that place very far away where he can look to earth and see dinosaurs. He is there right now. He's living there right now. God is living in your yesterday. And not only that, God is living right at this very moment in your tomorrow. He is not caged by space-time. What's it like to be God? Nobody knows. Certain statements in Scripture say clearly that God selected certain people to go to heaven And he selected certain other people to go to hell. And he did all of this before any of these people were ever born. That's what the Bible says. But the Bible also says that humans themselves choose whether they will be saved. That is, whether they will go to heaven or not. And so we have these ideas in Scripture that seem to be on a collision course. And they have something to do with time sequence. It happened before we were born. 
It was decided before we were born. But what does before mean to a God who's not attached to space-time, to a God who's living in the dinosaur days right now and living at this very moment in your future because he's not caged by space-time? So what do we mean by this happened before that? What does it even mean? We have three big ideas we're going to try to use to blow your minds today. Uh, The first one is that when you're reading Scripture, you get the overwhelming impression of some sort of world that has latitude within boundaries. So there are boundaries, but there seems to be a lot of latitude. Christians seem to have a lot of say. Human beings seem to have a lot of say in how things go. We're going to talk about the unnecessary leap that Christians sometimes make to an irresistible manipulation of God behind every detail of the universe. That's a leap, and it's unnecessary. And then we're going to talk about the mechanics of human choice in time and eternity. And this is, you know, beyond us, so we're just going to try to pull the veil back a little bit and have a peek at it. All right, human latitude. There is a lot of human latitude. Like, is, is Oedipus Rex's story, King Oedipus, is that your story? Are you pretty much locked in and you don't really have a lot of say? Because we have friends who tell us, yeah, that's how it is. Every electron spinning around every nucleus of every atom is determined by God. And there's not one thing anybody can do about it. Is that how the universe works? Well, there seems to be a lot of human latitude. So, for example, James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You do it. You move first. You go first and then I'll go. That's what God says, right? Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock. Here I am. You hear my voice. You open the door. I'll come in. You hear that? You have latitude. Open it or don't open it. It's up to you. Well, that's not Oedipus Rex. It wasn't really up to Oedipus Rex. He's going to end up where he ends up. Malachi 3.7 is just like James 4.8. Here the Lord says, return to me and I'll return to you. You go first. You return to me? Yes. Okay, then I'll return to you. You see, there's a lot of human latitude there. You can't see these, except maybe you can see the little yellow dots. Because this is like 400 light years away. You need a telescope to see this, right? Uh, But these are some of the seek passages in Scripture. So, for example, Deuteronomy 4.29, Moses says to the people, But if from there you will seek the Lord your God, you'll find him. If you seek him with all your heart. See, you have latitude. You want to seek him? That's up to you. It's up to you. Uh, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, David To Solomon, if you seek him, God will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. It's up to you. You want to seek him? 2 Chronicles 15, 2, seek. 2 Chronicles 15, 15, they sought and he was found. Psalms 27, 8, seek my face. When you said seek my face, I said your face, Lord, I will seek. Proverbs 8, 17, those who seek me early shall find me. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he's near. Jeremiah 29, 13, you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. You, you take the initiative, human latitude, you know, it's up to you. Matthew 7, 7, ask it shall be given, seek, you shall find. Matthew 17, 27, they should seek the Lord if perhaps they might feel after him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us, you, you should seek, it's up to you. Hebrews 11, 6, he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, those are all seek texts, many seek texts in Scripture. There's human latitude in 
Matthew eleven twenty eight. this invitation. Come to me. It's up to you. Don't have to come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. You don't have to. But if you want to, it's up to you. Human latitude. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who's thirsty come. And whoever will, let him take the water of life without charge. You want to? You want to come? You thirsty? You want to? It's up to you. The human latitude. It's not all set in stone. It's up to you. You have to decide. There are definitely divine boundaries, however. We see that the Lord is no pushover here. Look what happens in this text, Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he did foreknow, you see the time sequence there, right? He knew before, foreknow. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. There's a destiny before. So God is not a pushover. He's definitely putting boundaries in place. Be predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestinated, them he also called... So he says, I'm, I'm, I'm interacting with you, right? I'm calling you. I have predetermined something about you. So God is not a pushover. In Romans 9, we see divine boundaries everywhere. Talking about Jacob and Esau. <clears throat> the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. They haven't even been born yet. And they haven't done anything, either good or evil. They're just babies. They're in the womb. They haven't done anything. Um... That the purpose of God according to election, I've decided between these boys, I've decided that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, because they're in the womb, they haven't done anything. Not of works, but of him who calls. I am at work, God says. Verse 16, so it's not of him who wills, nor of him that runs, but of God who shows mercy, because they're just in the womb. They have nothing to say about it. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wishes, and whom he wishes he hardens. I don't like you. You I don't like. I'm going to send trouble to you. So what if God, wishing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Look, you're just not cut out for the kingdom of love. So you don't get to go. Same thing in Ephesians 1.4. God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You hear this time sequence. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love. Having predestinated, pre-time sequence, right? Predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. In verse 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated, the Lord has put boundaries. And there's nothing we can do about some of those boundaries, right? Predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things. Oh, wow. So in this case, it sounds like Oedipus Rex. He's predestinated all things. Even the electron spinning around the nucleus of the atom. Wow, okay. So I guess that's Oedipus Rex, right? It's not, but bear with me. Uh, John 6, 44, Jesus says, No man can come to me except the Father draw him. Well, nobody's ever going to come to me unless the Lord puts that thought in their minds. Same thing in verse 65. That's why I said, No man can come to me except it were given him of the Father. Nobody's ever going to come to me unless the Lord puts that thought in their mind. In 1 Peter 1, 2, you are elect according to the foreknowledge. Again, time sequence, right? Before, knowledge that you have before something else. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. You have been elected. You've been selected according to God's foreknowledge. And so we find that the Lord has these divine boundaries. We also find that the Lord has multiple wills. One of the strangest things in the Bible is to see that the Lord has mixed emotions. But we're not just talking about mixed emotions. We're talking about Mixed desires, mixed wishes, mixed wills. So we have Jesus ready to die on the cross in 
Luke 22:42, and of course Jesus is God, and He says, "Not my will, but Thine, Father, be done." Not my will, but Thine be done. So, God the Son has a different will than God the Father, a mixture of wills. Isn't that something? That's very interesting, isn't it? In Ephesians 1:11 again, God works all things after the counsel of His own will. So, in other words, we know that not everybody is going to be saved. And that verse says, oh yeah, that's the way God wanted it. God didn't want everybody to be saved. He decided to save some. And the reason that some are going to hell is because he worked all things after the counsel of his own will. That was his wish. Like, oh, okay. And then the same thing in Romans 9, 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whomever he wishes. And also he hardens whomever he wishes. Like, all right. So he's decided to save some. He selects some for heaven. And he selects most to hell. And that's just what he does. All right, so he has a wish to save only some. That's pretty clear in Scripture. But this is weird. He has a different wish. He has a different wish, and this wish collides with the first one. This wish is to save all. Like, really? How can God have two wishes? How can the Son say, not my will, but thine be done? I don't know. But I know it's true. Look, First Timothy 2.4. God, our Savior, wishes to have all men saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, I thought he didn't wish it. Well, this one says he does wish it. Well, which is it? Both. First John 2, 2, talking about Jesus, he's the propitiation. That's the satisfaction. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, not just a few, not just the selected ones. Second uh, Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack. He's not a slacker. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish. Well, I thought he did want them to perish, because after all, whom he wished, he called and justified and glorified, and whom he wished, he hardened. It's up to him, whatever is his wish. Oh, but this one says, well, he didn't wish that any of them would die. So which is it? Obviously, he has more than one will. And you understand that, because you have more than one will. Uh, most of you are gainfully employed. That probably means that you have a wish to go buy a new car. I don't know what is your favorite car, but probably you have a car that sort of um, captures your imagination. And you, being gainfully employed, you could do it. You could go to the dealership today or tomorrow and sign these documents, and you could get that car. You could. You want to. You know you know you want to. But you're not going to. Why? I mean, most of you are not going to. Because you don't want to. You don't want to incur the debt that that would involve. There would be repercussions on your finances for a long time, so you don't want to. Well, I thought you said you do want to. And now you don't want to. Well, you can't have it both ways. But of course you can. We all live that way all the time. And we are created in God's image. And you see that God has more than one wish, more than one will. And we find in Ephesians 1.11, for example, this is, this is the strongest verse in the Bible on determinism, Calvinism, the strongest one. This is the one where it says, we are predestinated according to the purpose of God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. All things after the counsel of his own will. So yes, the electron orbiting the nucleus of the atom. He is working all those things after the counsel of his own will. 
But remember, he has more than one will. One of his wills, his favorite wish, is that all things considered, only some people will go to heaven. Because he set up that whole love thing, and you have to decide, you have to seek, you have to come. But if you don't want to, if, if you're just not into that, if, if you don't care about love, if you don't care about kingdom of love, if you don't care about God, well then, I do not wish to bring you to heaven. So I wish that everybody would love me, but if you're not going to love me, I do not wish to bring you to my kingdom of love. So more than one wish, right? So he works all things after the counsel of his own will. It all works exactly how he wants it. All things considered. You see this interplay. It's so interesting to watch how this God who lives outside of space-time has this relationship with people who live in space-time. And that must be strange. So Exodus 32, 14. And the Lord repented of the evil he thought to do unto his people. This is the story when uh, Moses got the Ten Commandments up on the mountain. He comes down. The people have already created a golden calf, idolatry, nakedness, orgy, a whole big mess. And the Lord tells Moses, when he hasn't even come down off the mountain, he says, the Lord says, let me alone, leave me alone for a while, because I'm going to kill the entire nation. And Moses says, Lord, you can't do that. You Don't say that. Because what will the Egyptians say? I mean, you just brought us out of Egypt, and now you're going to kill everybody. What are the Egyptians going to say? And besides that, Lord, remember Abraham. You told Abraham that you were going to raise up a nation from him and Isaac and Jacob, and if you just wipe us all out, uh, that's really not going to work. You, you, you can't do that. So the Bible says, okay, the Lord changed his mind. <laughs> that is not Oedipus Rex. All right, you're right. I'm not going to do that. The Lord is interacting with Moses in our time in such a way to say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I was going to do that, but I'm not going to do that anymore. That is not some sort of concrete, set in stone path that cannot be altered. The path has been altered. The Bible specifically says the Lord repented. And when you see the word repent, that means change your mind. The Lord changed his mind. So even the Lord's mind was changed. A staunch determinist is going to say, nah, I can't believe that. Like, well, I really think you should believe the Bible when you see it. Here are our telescopes. You're going to need a telescope once again to read these words. Telescopes going every direction. This is God, you know, figuratively, right now, seeing every direction. So God is talking to Moses. That's the telescope that looks up. God is talking to Moses, and he changes his mind. Oh, the telescope that looks left, that is God talking to Abraham. Now remember, all of this is happening in the same time, whatever time means to God, who's not attached to space-time. All this is happening simultaneously, and all of this is happening all the time without stopping. It never really goes away in God's omniscience, his awareness. So while God is talking to Moses, Moses said, you really shouldn't do that, and God changed his mind. While he's talking to Moses, he is also talking to Abraham when Abraham says, don't destroy Sodom. And in the story of Sodom, which is so great, in Genesis 18, the Lord says, interacting in time, he says, 
I am going to go to Sodom and see if this is true. Like, you who know everything, you are going to go to Sodom to check things out. You don't already know? Because you were supposed to know, you know, Oedipus Rex teaches us, you were supposed to know this like a long, long time ago before the world was ever created. And now you're going to go see if it's true. Like, what? Yeah, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to see. And, and Abraham says, well, you can't destroy Sodom because there might be 50 people there. And the Lord says, well, if there are, then I won't destroy it. But Abraham is a good Middle Eastern negotiator. He said, well, what if there are only 45? The Lord says, well, I still won't. And negotiating still, 30, 20, 10. Abraham gets the Lord all the way down to 10. This is a real negotiation. He's interacting with people in real time. Abraham has latitude to negotiate with God. Moses has latitude to change God's mind. It's really, really happening. Say, well, that just is too weird. I want it to be like Oedipus Rex. Like, well, sorry. That's not the way the Bible reads. The telescope pointing down is uh, Jesus saying, forgive them, they know not what to do, what they do. And the telescope pointing right is the sheep and goats judgment where Jesus says, inasmuch as you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. Now, I mean, this is nonsensical, but we're stuck. We, we are caged in time. The Lord is having those conversations all at the same time. Not only that, he is still having all of those conversations because it never goes away with him. And you see the telescopes are also looking at a dinosaur, uh, Calvary, Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, uh, because the Lord is experiencing all of that in this moment, as well as in the moments we're reading about in all of those texts. It never goes away with him. It just depends on how many light years away he is from the story, so to speak. Jeremiah 18, 7. At one instant, the Lord says, at one instant, I speak concerning a nation. This is the potter and the clay. Concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom. To pluck it up, to pull it down, to destroy it. Now, if that nation repents, they turn from their wicked ways, then I'll change my mind. But you go first. I've decided. It's predetermined. It's set in stone. I am going to destroy your nation. But if you change, I'll change. You see the latitude and the Lord interacting with this? It's not Oedipus Rex. I will repent of the evil that I thought to do. Verse 9. And at one instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it and plan. Oh, you're so wonderful. I'm just going to make you prosper. Verse 10. If it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I'll change my mind about them. And I won't do the good that I said I was going to do. So the Lord is portrayed as beginning to execute one plan, and then because of human latitude, he changes his mind and executes a different plan. That's not pagan fatalism. Ezekiel 18.24. When the righteous person turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations, the detestable things that the wicked people do, shall he live? The answer is no. All his righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned. You changed, I'm changing the plan. You see, it's not set in stone before you were born and it never changes. It is possible to interact with God all through your life. In fact, that's exactly what's happening. 
we do not need to make this unnecessary leap to an irresistible manipulation of every detail in the universe. It might be tempting to make that leap because you see certain things, for example, the great text in Romans 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 1. Sure, you could make that leap. But all things considered, it really doesn't work very well in Scripture. Which is the bigger God? Someone will say, well, you're just going to have to submit to this Oedipus Rex God. You say, why? Which is the bigger God? The staunch determinist God who has caged himself in the sequences of time. You're stuck. Free, determined, foreordained, before the foundation of the world. The children not even born yet. You've stuck God in a cage of time, sequence, and he can't get out of it. Is that God bigger? Or how about the God for whom space-time, big as space-time is, the God for whom space-time is supplemental, optional, often irrelevant, and maybe even relatively new, maybe only 6,000 years old, maybe older than that, but, you know, 6,000 years of human history. Which God is bigger? We're not seeing a necessity for irresistible manipulation as in the Oedipus Rex story. Sure, whom he did foreknow, he predestinated, whom he predestinated, then he called. But you have to see that God saw your life in the womb at the same time he saw you as a believer in heaven and is seeing you in both places at this very moment, including the place you are right now and every place in between. Depending on how many light years he zooms out, he can see you at every stage in your life, but in fact, he is omnipresent, so he is in all of those light years away. He is watching you in the womb and in heaven at this moment. To him, it's all the same. He's not caged in sequence of time. God is huge. God is so different than you imagine him to be. And because he's not caged in space-time, why say that there was just one way in space-time and God locked it down and nothing had changed? The truth is, God was interacting with you in the womb and he's interacting with you today and he'll be interacting with you in heaven and he is doing all of that interaction with you at this very moment. This is just, this is just so far beyond what we're used to imagining about God. But that's what it means to have a God who's not locked into time sequence. Well, same thing then with all of these passages. The children being not yet born, Jacob and Esau, twins in the womb. They haven't done anything. And the Lord says, no, I have decided to love Jacob and I've decided to hate Esau. Esau's going to go to hell. Think, But Lord, they're not even here yet. Right, but it makes no difference to God who's not stuck in space time. In the womb... God had already been interacting with Jacob and Esau through their entire lives, including at this moment in heaven and hell, still interacting with them, seeing them the entire time. And so you think, well, that's just so unfair. The, the boys haven't even done anything yet. Like, well, they certainly did to God, depending on how many light years he zooms out. He can watch the boys all along their boyhood and their manhood and then their eternal split to heaven and hell. He watches the whole thing all day, every day, on that day, today. You know, you have a birthday star. Uh, on your birthday, if you want to, you can go to the website. You uh, type in today's date. You know, if this is my birthday, today's date. And um, the year of my birth. And they'll say, okay, if you have a telescope, 
uh, look at that star right there. The light of that star started shining. You know, for me, it'd be the light of that star started shining August 2nd, 1960, and it's, it's here now. That's your birthday star. It's that light started on its journey when you were born, and here it is. That's kind of cool. Um, but you see, you do that for every birthday because some stars are 20 light years away and some are 30 light years away and some are 50. And however old you are, that light is reaching, you know, you and on your birthday if you want to look it up on that particular day. Well, yeah, the children didn't do anything. That's true. But God had been interacting with them through their entire lives when they're in the womb, but not even that, before they were in the womb, but not even that, before he made the heavens and the earth. It's their whole lives. So we're not saying that the Lord made his decision based on nothing but what the determinists sometimes call his own arbitrary choice. You might say his whim. We're not saying that's how God made his choice. We're saying that God had been interacting with these boys before the foundation of the world and is still interacting with them every moment of every day that they have ever lived. That's what it means to live outside of time. And there is no sequence to God. Do the same thing in the hard passages of Ephesians 1. Do the same thing in the hard passages of John 6 and 1 Peter 1. It's always the same. Who says that God wasn't interacting with you all of your life to see what kind of a person you are every day? And if the clay is being made into something bad and you change, then something good and the Lord would have lived all through that with you before he ever said, let there be light. Remember the general grace that exists to counter depravity. So we don't need, as they sometimes say, irresistible grace or irresistible manipulation of every detail of the universe. So John 1, 9, speaking of Jesus, says, you know, he's the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. Everybody has common grace to seek God. John twelve thirty two. If I be lifted up from the earth, if I'm crucified, I'll draw everybody to me. Everybody is going to have this magnetism toward God. So it's totally true that nobody would ever seek God left to themselves. But why would you ever read these verses and think any person was left to himself? No person was left to himself. We have the true light of Jesus that lights every person. We have Jesus drawing all people to him. Whatever gave you the idea that anybody would be left to themselves? Romans 2.14, when the Gentiles, people who had no idea of God, when the Gentiles, which do not have any Bible, no law, they do by nature. It's just in them to have some understanding of God. They do by nature the things contained in the law of these. Having not the law, are law unto themselves. There's something all by themselves that the Lord has put in their hearts. And this shows the work of the law written in their hearts. Who is left to himself? Say, well, nobody. You know, there is none that seeketh good. No, not one. Right. Left to themselves. They would never seek God. But they were never left to themselves. That's the point. This is the work of God written in their hearts. A friend posted this on social media from Charles Spurgeon. I think most of you know, I love Charles Spurgeon. You know, He's a hero. 
I would gladly change places with him at the judgment seat of Christ if he wants to. I'll ask him. Spurgeon was preaching. He says, you know, he's thinking out loud, how did I become a Christian? All right. How did you come to be a Christian? Mm, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? Well, the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. Now, that's true. That's wonderful, of course. But you can't go from there and say, well, that shows irresistible grace. What that shows is, I will draw all men to me. This is the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. This shows the work of the law written in their hearts. You don't need to go from that reality, and that is a reality, to saying, well, there's irresistible movement of God, and he has decided to save Oedipus Rex, and there's not one thing Oedipus Rex can do about it. The Lord is going to press the truth home to him until he goes to heaven. Or the Lord has decided to throw Oedipus Rex in hell, and there's not one thing Oedipus Rex can do about it because the Lord is removing all light and all conscience so that he will never respond to the gospel, and there's not one thing he can do about it. That's just not the way the Bible reads. So the mechanics, just very briefly... How can this be so? Well, you know, the great name for God in Scripture is Jehovah. And in Exodus 3.14, he explained to Moses, this is his name. Uh, I am who I am, or I am what I am. And he says, tell the people in bondage that I am Jehovah, Yahweh. I am has sent me to you. Tell them that. That name, I am, Jehovah, Yahweh, Yahweh, however we're going to say it, occurs almost 7,000 times in the Hebrew Bible. In John 8, 57, Jesus helps us clarify what was intended by that. It's like, why does he call himself that? I am who I am, or I am what I am. I am. Why does he call himself that? Well, it becomes clear in John 8, 57, because the Jews told Jesus, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, well, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to kill him because they knew that he was imitating the name of God, Jehovah there. I am. The important thing there is that you see the time problem. If you wrote a sentence like this in English class in high school, you would have had red ink all over it. You cannot say, before Abraham was, I am. You're supposed to say, before Abraham was, I was, if that's what you mean. But you can't say, before Abraham was, I am. That's nonsensical. You know, bad job, red ink, not good. Except if there's no space-time. If we mean, I am living in 32 A.D. with Abraham, I am right now living with Abraham, 32 A.D., But Abraham was here in 2000 B.C. But before 2000 B.C., well, I am that. And I'm also here now. And, of course, he's in the future. The whole thing has always been about time. 
And we don't know exactly how, I mean, who knows what it's like to be God, right? Nobody can think like God. We're just not there. We cannot imagine space-time in the eyes of an eternal God. What must space-time be like with omnipresence? If time and space are all tangled together and God is everywhere, then you see why God is light years away watching dinosaurs and all of those things. I mean, what is, what is space-time to God? What was God's thinking before he created space-time? What was that existence like? We have no idea. Because he did create space-time, right? In the beginning, God created. So what was it like before he created space-time? We don't know. We simply cannot imagine how latitude within boundaries might be arranged because we're stuck in time, and he is not. So how does he do it? I don't know what it's like to be God. On the left-hand side, you have a picture from a Ritz-Carlton window of the Macy's Parade, Thanksgiving Day Parade. And those people got this view so that the, the big you know, balloons that go by, they're watching that in their window. That's such a good illustration of the parade from our perspective, locked in time. We see present tense. You can see what's happening right now. You might remember something about mm, five years ago, but you don't see it. You see what's happening right now, and you certainly don't see the future. You're stuck with looking through the frame of a window, very narrow, very narrow perspective. On the right-hand side, you see what the parade looks like from an aerial view, and now you see many floats. So to you, you see the first float go by, and then it's gone. It goes into the past, and another one's coming, and you haven't seen that one yet. And so you just see what's right in front of you. You don't see the future floats and you can't see the past floats anymore. You just see the one that's right in front of you. But God is like over the top of the parade. And God sees all the floats at the same time. Then, well, how does he see them all? I can just look through this window and see one. Right. We don't know how he sees it all. We don't know. But God is living in this moment from the aerial view. God is actually living in this moment in what you call yesterday. And God is living in this moment in what you call the future. Say, but I only see the present. Right. You're not God. So here's our conclusion. Are humans actually prisoners of fate? Because we have friends who are insisting that we are all Oedipus Rex lookalikes. Now what happened to him is basically the same story as is happening with everybody. And I'd just like to remind you that Oedipus Rex is a pagan story. Scripture gives us the overwhelming impression that there is latitude. Boundaries, yes, but latitude within the boundaries. That's the way the Bible sounds when you read it. And nothing in Scripture demands that we make this leap to irresistible manipulation of all the details in the universe. That's just not how the Bible reads. And there's no particular statement in the Bible that demands it. God's mind-boggling omnipresence in space-time and also beyond space-time because if you blew the whole universe into weeds, you wouldn't have hurt God. He's beyond the universe, right? So the mind-boggling omnipresence of God in space-time and beyond space-time is so complicated that one of the silliest things I could ever come up to you and say is that I insist that you understand that you are locked in the sequence of time and there's nothing you can do about it. That's just not how the Bible reads. And God is much, much bigger than you've imagined.